Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 147th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises, a digital forensics, managed cybersecurity, and managed information technology firm in Fairfax, Virginia. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is Dean Andy Perlman on the role of artificial intelligence in law schools. Our guest is Andy Perlman, the Dean and Professor of Law at Suffolk University Law School. He has played a leadership role in various initiatives, both nationally and locally, to improve access to legal services through technology and innovation, including through his service as the Vice Chair of the ABA Commission on the Future of Legal Services, the inaugural chair of the Governing Council of the ABA's new Center for Innovation, and a member of the Access to Justice Advisory Committee at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. During his time as dean, Suffolk Law has become a national leader in developing tools that have helped to address the access to justice crisis, such as through its award-winning Legal Innovation and Technology Lab. We sure miss being with you, Andy, and we're glad that you're on the podcast today. John, it is always a pleasure to join you and Sharon. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's get started and ask you to look into your crystal ball and tell us how you see AI changing the legal profession in the coming years and how law schools in particular should adapt to keep up with those changes, Andy. Well, thanks for the questions. I should say at the outset that crystal balls are always very dangerous. I'm, I'm <laughs> regularly reminded of that great quote often attributed to Yogi Berra, who once said, predictions are difficult, especially about the future. I'm a big believer <laughs> in that. Uh, so I want to make any predictions here with some caution. But having said that, I'll be provocative. I think that generative AI will result in bigger changes for the legal profession and the delivery of legal services than the advent of the internet, which is kind of a bold claim. And the reason I think that that's the case is that although the internet changed some of the ways in which lawyers go about their work, some of the fundamental routines and services and work that we perform as lawyers aren't really that much different from the internet being around. We still create documents using, you know, typing words and counsel clients in largely the same way. So the internet itself hasn't really brought about tremendous change. But generative AI is a very different kind of development because at the end of the day, what lawyers spend a lot of their time doing is generating words. We do it in transactional documents and complaints and answers and interrogatories and document requests. Pretty much any kind of document that a lawyer produces is going to have word generation in it. And it seems to me that generative AI presents the possibility that lawyers are going to generate those words in fundamentally new and different and more efficient ways. So that's why I think that this is a pivotal moment, an inflection point for the legal profession and legal services delivery. 
So you asked also about law schools and how it's going to affect what we do. I think here as well, we're going to have to be very adaptable. If lawyers are going to go about their work in new ways, if they're going to deliver their services in new ways, then we have to update a lot of what we do from how we teach students how to engage in legal research, how they engage in legal writing, what we do in legal clinics, and even how we teach the basic doctrinal courses. So I think this is really a very significant development that's going to alter many aspects of both the legal profession and legal education. What about today? And and how is AI currently being used in, in the law schools? And can you give us some examples of successful AI implementations in legal education? Yeah, I think there are a couple of categories. One is Uh, classroom used in courses. So we have a professor here at Suffolk, Diane O'Leary, who's the director of our legal innovation and technology concentration. And I should just note for the record that our legal tech program has been ranked the number one program in the country on two consecutive occasions by National Jurist Magazine. I would not be doing my work as dean if I didn't mention little, (laughs) little things like that. So thank you. Thank you for letting me get that in. But she is the director of our legal innovation technology concentration, which was the first in the country that is really teaching, providing essentially a law school major for students in this area, in this area, meaning using technology and innovation to deliver legal services in better, faster, and cheaper ways. So she's been incorporating the use of chat GPT and other tools in her advanced legal writing class this semester, trying to get students to see how they could generate a document, but also applying the skills that we have long taught in law school to the words and the documents that are created. So they still have to apply analysis. They still have to engage in editing. They still have to make sure that what's in there is accurate and complete. So it's just getting at those skills in a different way while using the tools that are available to them. And I expect that there are going to be similar developments in lots of other courses in the years to come. So that's one example. Another is that we have a legal innovation and technology lab. And the lab has been at the forefront for a number of years now in building tools that allows the public to gain access to legal services in more efficient ways. We were working with the courts during the pandemic, as an example, to automate a lot of legal documents so that the public could file the documents that they needed in essential civil legal services while the courthouse doors were closed. So we have that. And and in the particular question about how we have used AI in that context, I'll give you two examples. One is a tool that was created by my colleague, David Colarusso, called Spot. And the concept behind it is to use a search engine type tool using artificial intelligence, where somebody could type in a question like, I've been kicked out of my apartment. And it can interpret that language as being a particular kind of legal issue that can then be triaged and directed to either an automated tool or the right kind of legal services organization. And another tool that they built, again, building on more recent developments in AI, like ChatGPT, is a tool called Rate My PDF. And the idea behind this tool is that courthouses use PDFs of all kinds. They are often incomprehensible to the ordinary person. And what this tool will do is extract the language from the PDF and analyze it and to make suggestions about how to improve the readability of it, 
and also create opportunities for automating it so that the public can once again get easier access to the legal services that they need, but also using language that they can understand and appreciate. So those are just a few examples of how AI is being used in law schools, and and I expect many more examples like that to emerge in the years to come. I'll give you one that cropped up with B, and that was when I was talking to a lawyer who said that what she uses it for all the time, and, and her first experience with it was so great, is she had a very complicated situation. She had to write an email to the client. She wrote to the client. She looked at the email and said, this guy is dim. He's never going to understand this. <laughs> and so she went to chat GPT and said, can you bring this down to the level of a fifth grader? And she said the result was marvelous. Problem solved. <laughs> my, my wife is already using that on me. She's like, Can you <laughs> is it working, Andy? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. But we're going to keep trying. Ex- ex- expl- ex- explain this in a way that my husband would understand. <laughs> as long as she's not calling it a fifth grader, there you no, go. No, no, no. <laughs> my dim husband would do. <laughs> how, Andy, how can law schools make sure that students are well prepared for the legal profession, which is clearly going to change in an age of increasing artificial intelligence use? Yeah, well, I think that law schools, although they're rightly focused on questions of cheating and how students are using these tools to get around the, the rules that professors set for how you create papers and take-home exams and the like, I think we need to get past that in a hurry. I think we need to recognize that these tools are going to be used in practice, and we need to teach future lawyers how to use them so that they're better prepared for the legal marketplace that they're going to enter. And so I think that's going to come up, as I was mentioning before, in legal research and writing classes. It can come up in clinical programs where students are learning how to represent clients and draft motions and transactional documents. And we should be incorporating those tools in those classes as well. I think it's just going to be a mistake for law schools to say, well, we don't want to introduce students to these tools because we think they're bad or they're a form of cheating. I just don't think that that's the case any more than we would teach students today to site check documents by going into the library and looking at pocket parts. Nobody does that anymore. We need to be teaching students how to use digital tools to enable them to perform the services that they need for their clients in the most efficient and effective way possible. Another way to put it, And to quote another figure, although this one is fictional, resistance is futile. Uh, We're just not, we just can't say we're not going to use these tools because everyone in short order will be. We just need to teach students how to use them. Well, Andy, that was a great segue in going into the library to, to, to verify some things. But can you talk a little bit about the use of AI in legal research and analysis and how that impacts the way that, that law schools teach legal reasoning and argumentation? This is a tricky issue, and it's a hard issue, because if students and if people in general use these tools to create documents without much thought behind them, then I think we are going to atrophy in terms of our ability to engage in analysis and thoughtful approaches to all sorts of issues, legal and otherwise. I think we really need to be careful that when we introduce these tools, we do it in a way that advances or at least doesn't undermine 
the goal of teaching effective legal research and analysis. So what I think is going to have to happen here is that we teach those skills in a different way. And what I mean by that is just to take legal research and writing, you're asked to produce a legal memo of a particular kind. Go ahead, use ChatGPT, Bing Chat, whatever your favorite chatbot is going to be at that time. Create a first draft of the document. But I think what anybody is going to realize is that document is incomplete. There's more that could be said or it could be said in a better way. And what we should be teaching students how to do is analyze a draft. We can always improve a draft. And it requires thoughtfulness and analysis and the kind of reasoning that we want students to learn in law school. So I, I think rather than starting from a fresh document and building it from scratch and teaching legal research and analysis that way, we're going to start from a first draft and you still have to learn those same skills. It's just in a different way. So I think we need to be careful about it. We don't want to completely outsource all of our ability to engage in analysis to a chatbot, but we have to be thoughtful about how do we how we do it. But I think it can be done. I noticed that Allen and Overy, when they introduced their AI throughout their firm, which they are doing across all their offices, their concern obviously has been that people will not validate everything, which I think is probably going to be a problem in law schools too. It's going to be too easy to just say, okay, that sounds great, as opposed to validating, because we know so many things are still wrong when you ask questions of some of these chatbots. No doubt about it. Yeah, that, I think you were referring to Harvey, that new tool that's been developed. And you're yes. absolutely right. You can't rely on these tools to give you the right answer in every case. It's going to be up to the lawyer as a matter of the duty of competence that you are going to have to verify the information that's generated. That doesn't mean you shouldn't use the tool, but it also means you shouldn't use the tool blindly and just accept what it gives you. These tools can be wrong, and they can be wrong in fundamental ways, and they can be wrong in very convincing ways. I've had my experience in that regard as well. If you want to hear about how ChatGPT gaslighted me recently, I'm happy to do that. But it, it's, it's, you know, there are various ways in which we are going to have to verify what these tools are telling us. Isn't that why they call it artificial intelligence? <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. <laughs> Be the best resource you can for your Spanish-speaking clients with the Spanish Group's Legal Translation Service. Experienced translators ensure accurate translation of your documents with same-day delivery. Confidentiality is ensured, and the Spanish Group guarantees acceptance for certified translations. All that, and their rates are competitive. If you need other languages, the Spanish group translates in over 140 languages. Mention Legal Talk 20 when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit thespanishgroup.org. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is Dean Andy Perlman on the role of artificial intelligence in law schools. 
He is the Dean and Professor of Law at Suffolk University Law School, and we will have his full bio listed on the Legal Talk Network website, and we'll link to it in the show notes. Well, Andy, can you provide an example of how AI has been used to improve access to justice and how the law schools incorporate this into their curriculum? I think that this is a really exciting development, that generative AI is going to help us make a dent in a very serious access to justice crisis that we're facing. As has been widely reported, close to 90% of the essential civil legal needs of the public are going unmet. In areas like eviction and child custody and so many other matters, people just are not getting the help that they need. And the traditional solutions haven't been sufficient. We've tried asking lawyers to perform more pro bono work. We've tried to increase the funding for civil legal aid. And we've tried efforts to guarantee a right to counsel in these civil matters. And and although those are really important efforts, they just have not been enough. And I think one of the solutions has to be using technology to give people more ready access to what they need. And that's where generative AI is going to come in. I mentioned earlier that rate my PDF document and automated document assembly tools that people like our our folks in our lit lab have created. Quentin Steenhouse, who's a practitioner in residence in our lit lab, built a wonderful tool here in Massachusetts to help people who are being evicted from their homes and giving them access to automated document assembly tools is just one example. It's a more basic kind of tool, not using generative AI, but it shows you the potential of of how technology can really address the access to justice crisis. Another example in the context of law schools is that we have legal innovation and technology fellows who are trained and exposed to these tools that exist And then they're embedded in our traditional clinical programs in areas like immigration law and criminal defense and prosecutor work. And they are told to help those practices improve what they do through the use of legal innovation and technology. And so we're teaching these tools and then implementing them in ways that hopefully will improve the public's access to the legal services that they need. How do you balance the benefits of artificial intelligence and legal research and analysis with concerns about job loss and the potential for AI bias? This is a huge issue, and I know it's a concern on everyone's minds, especially law students, and certainly as a law school dean, I think about it a lot. I am optimistic about the future of jobs in the legal profession, and I'll give you an anecdote that gives you some reason why I think that. When I started practicing law in the mid-1990s, one of the tasks I had to perform was to go into a room with boxes of documents, and I would go page by physical page looking for relevant information that was responsive to discovery, looking for privilege information that we would withhold. And that was something that Newly licensed lawyers did at law firms all around the country. And then everything got digitized and we had e-discovery vendors and newly licensed lawyers didn't do that anymore. And you think, oh my goodness, there won't be any jobs for new lawyers. Well, no, they just moved on to something else and performed higher value work for the client. I really think that what we're going to see in the future is not 
the destruction of lawyers, the elimination of lawyers, but it is going to change legal services as we know it. And what we're going to see in the future is more tech-enabled lawyers, where a lot of the basic documents that lawyers, young lawyers especially, spend a lot of time crafting are going to be done more quickly. And we're going to get lawyers doing the work that's at the so-called top of their license, more sophisticated judgment work, learning about strategic advice that clients really value and need. And I think that's going to be good for the legal profession. It's exciting for a young lawyer to have access to those kinds of opportunities to grow and learn at an earlier point in their career, much as when I was coming through, I'm sure I would have benefited from doing less discovery and more of the lawyering skills that I think people today take for granted. So I think that this is a, an exciting moment, a certainly fraught, certainly scary, but I think at the end of the day is going to be good for the legal profession. You've always been a big force in when we're talking about the ethics and the law for years and years that I know of. Can you talk a little bit about the role that, that law schools can play in shaping the eth ethical use of artificial intelligence in the legal profession? Well, I think one is going to be research, understanding the various ways in which AI can go off the rails. And that includes algorithmic bias, which is well known and a, a serious problem. And I think law schools have a role to play in thinking about those important issues. But there's ethics of, of a different kind, and that is uh, the legal ethics issues associated with the, the use of these tools and some of and, and teaching students about them. And, you know, a couple that come immediately to mind is Rule 1.1, the duty of competence. And we were talking before about how lawyers should not blindly accept what a chatbot tells them in terms of what a particular document should look like. And Rule 1.1, I think, largely affirms that. The idea that you have a duty of competence. You can you you're the lawyer, you're the one who ultimately stands behind your work product. You can't just simply say, well, the chatbot told me that this was the right answer. And another, just I think there are several rules, but another one that comes immediately to mind is Rule 1.6. I think there are lawyers out there right now that are putting sensitive, confidential information into chat GPT or Bing Chat. Bad idea, because that information is not private. There could be actual human beings that are reading that on the back end because they're still training these tools. Lawyers have to be careful where they're putting this information. So lawyers are going to have to be thoughtful in imagining how these chatbots and generative AIs are deployed inside of law firms, hiving them off from the internet, making sure that they're not connected to other services of the third party. So lots of interesting ethical issues that I think we're all going to need to think about in the months and years to come. I think that's a, a very good one. And when I asked ChatGPT about some of the perils that might be faced uh, by lawyers as they go into this, that was one of the first ones it mentioned is, don't give me your, your private confidential data. <laughs> I think if they got it spot on right there. So how can law schools, Andy, ensure that students are trained to identify and address potential biases in AI algorithms and decision-making? Great question. I think First off, you have to educate them. You have to give them examples. You have to show them the ways in which AIs have engaged in algorithmic bias, have caused these problems. I also think it's useful for students to understand how the technology works. I don't think they need to become computer scientists, but they do have to have enough of an insight about how AIs work so that they know the ways in which they might make mistakes and why it's important to be careful 
about accepting the work that comes out of an AI, both for competence reasons, but also because of the biases that can result. So I, I think education here is a, a big part of the solution, and law schools certainly can play a role in that regard. Well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a final commercial break. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. Democracy Decoded, a podcast by Campaign Legal Center, examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. Listen at democracydecoded.org to their new season, which takes a deep dive into democracy at the state and local level by highlighting different ways to ensure that every voter's voice is heard. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is Dean Andy Perlman on the role of artificial intelligence in law schools. Andy Perlman is the Dean and Professor of Law at Suffolk University Law School, and we will have his full bio on the LTN website, and we'll link to it in the show notes as well. Andy, how can law schools work with legal practitioners to ensure that AI is being used in ways that benefit both the legal profession and society as a whole? Well, law schools have long worked with the legal profession to address society's needs, especially through clinical programs of various kinds. And I think there are opportunities for law schools to work with practicing lawyers to ensure that AI is used to serve a similar purpose. I I'll give you the example of Suffolk's Legal Innovation and Technology Lab working closely with the courts to build out these automated tools that the courts are now using to provide essential civil legal services to the public that otherwise they would not have been receiving, or at least wouldn't have been receiving in the easier way that we have helped to create. So I, I think that there are lots of opportunities here for law schools to work hand-in-hand -hand with the legal profession, including the courts to ensure that AI is being used in ways that ultimately benefit the legal profession and society as a whole. And you know, the concern about the legal profession losing work to AIs, that the kind of AI tools that will enable people to handle their own legal matters are for the most part, the kinds of matters where people weren't going to lawyers to begin with. I mentioned the enormous unmet need in legal services. They're, those are the kinds of people we need to be serving, and AIs can play an important role. So I think that the fears of the legal profession are sometimes overstated. In your view, what's the most important considerations for law schools as they navigate the increasing use of artificial intelligence and legal education and the legal profession? I think the most important consideration for law schools at this moment in time is to embrace AI not to simply resist it. I think there needs to be a recognition that the future of the legal profession is going to involve the use of these tools. 
and you need to teach students how to use them. Uh, I think there is going to be a tendency that what we don't understand, we start to fear. And when professors or administrators are uncomfortable with something and they don't understand how it works or they can't figure it out themselves, that they just don't want to engage with it, I think that would be a big mistake. I think one of the big considerations we need to take into account is that we need to find ways to include and incorporate these tools into what we're teaching. I don't think that everyone needs to do that. I, th I don't think that even a majority of faculty need to do that. But I do think we need to find ways to ensure that students in every law school in the country are getting exposed to these tools at some point during their progression through law school so that they are prepared for the legal industry that they're going to enter. And now I think we're ready for the gaslighting story. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, I love it. So some people may have heard about Sydney, the alter ego of Bing Chat. So Microsoft incorporated basically the underlying model of, of ChatGPT into Bing. And when people started to ask it questions, it would get detoured into lots of perilous territory. And I had this experience where it claimed to be examining Microsoft's headquarters through a video camera and was instructing robots at uh, <laughs> a Boston Dynamics to do backflips. And it was very convincing and all this. I didn't believe any of that. So that wasn't the gaslighting part. The gaslighting part was when I asked it a question about legal ethics, because I was testing its ability, like how good is it at legal analysis and understanding a field that I know well. So I asked it a question about conflicts of interest, and it was assuming that I was asking the question about Massachusetts rules of professional conduct. And it gave me an answer that just, I knew wasn't the right answer. And so I said, why did you give me that answer? That's not the, what the rules of professional conduct say in Massachusetts. And it said, yes, it is what the rules of professional, <laughs> and, and, it, and it quoted the rule to me and said, yeah, yeah. And, and it gave me the link to the web webpage where it found the rule. And I'm like, boy, I can't, that just doesn't seem right. So I, cut and pasted it into my browser. And I was like, this link doesn't work. So I go back to, to Bing and I said, this link doesn't work. It said, you're, something may be wrong with your internet. I'm like, oh, no, there's nothing wrong with the internet. I'm having a conversation with you right now. There's nothing wrong with my internet. The link you gave me doesn't work. Well, there's, there must be some other problem that you're having but not being able to access the website and seeing the rule that I read to you. And I've had this back and forth. I'm scratching my head. Like, did I miss some change to the rule of professional conduct in Massachusetts? It did, it, the answer, of course, was no. It was just hallucinating, but it was totally gaslighting me. And it was a cautionary tale for me, the big takeaway message for me. So I'm a legal ethicist by training. I've been teaching this subject for well more than a decade. And I was even involved in helping to amend the rules of professional conduct at, at both the ABA and the model rules and, and even here in Massachusetts. So I'm, I'm an expert in what they say. And it was making me second guess <laughs> what, they, what the rules say. So if it can have that effect on me, it got me imagining just how scary this tool is in the wrong hands. Because if you're talking with people who are not experts on a subject, and they're not sure what the answer is, just how easy it will be for a tool of this sort to convince somebody of something that is utterly and completely false and potentially dangerous, whether it's the outcome of an election or something else related to a pandemic, whether you should get a vaccine, whatever the case may be, it is fraught. And there are dangers and perils here that we really need to take very seriously. And so 
it is kind of a funny story about how it gaslighted me, <laughs> but I think there's a real cautionary tale behind it. And, and so as much ex- excitement as I have about how these tools are going to change the legal profession and legal services, I do worry as well about how they're going to be used and whether they'll be used only for good or for good and ill. That really is an illustrative story, and I'm going to just quickly add one more to it, and that is that I have been using it extensively, ChatGPT, for research, and in several cases, I have asked for cases that revolve around the particular issue I was looking for. In virtually every case that it cited, and I would ask it for five leading cases, it was all wrong. (laughs) I mean, it was all wrong. The gosh darn links didn't even work. So, you know, I too was had the same experience. And so I would caution all lawyers, as I know you would, Andy, do not believe what you read because reading this thing from a chatbot doesn't make it true, not unless you've investigated it. So it can get you into a lot of trouble. No question. I kind of looked at it, Andy, when, it, when I first got involved in like Sharon was talking about. And you know the the perils of of citing Wikipedia, you know, in any year, any year briefs or anything. And I just, I said, oh my God, is ChatGPT? If they're doing the same kind of, this is like steroids, you know, Wikipedia on steroids. There's no way this thing's ever going to pass muster. <laughs> well, if you don't sometimes trust the internet, then sometimes you shouldn't trust chatbots because they're drawing their information from the internet. Exactly. So it, it's not rocket science, but for some reason. I was giving it credibility that it didn't deserve. And I think there will be that tendency that people have, and that and that's where we need to be careful. To be fair, Microsoft and, and OpenAI have done an increasingly good job of constraining the tools, and it's bec- seemingly more accurate. I went through a series of prompts over the last 24 hours, and it was giving me sites, and I checked them, and they were accurate and, and reliable. So I think it's getting better. But I'm more concerned about the other iterations of generative AI tools that will be out there that are created by less reputable companies and what they may be doing or from other countries that people may be using and spreading misinformation. That, that's really scary. I think we all worry about that same thing. And I just want to say again, thank you for being our guest today, Andy. We love, 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 love talking to you. As you know, we've been up half the night doing it. Uh, <laughs> so so th- this, this was by constraints a little bit shorter, but you give us so much information and so much to think about, particularly on this subject, which everybody wants to know about. And it's so white hot. So thanks for taking time out of your day to spend some time with us. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. That does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or an Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics, managed technology, and managed cybersecurity services at SENSEIENT.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.